case file number 5.12. The loft. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Agent Crenshaw. Still working on this Gibson thing. No, Chief. You, you gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No, nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No, how is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. And and the other one, the other one, Ymir. He's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief, what would J. Edgar Hoover do? Come, Chief, all I need is more time. Sooner or later they're going to slip up and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Hey, Mayor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You remember the movie The Hunt for Red October? Yes, with uh, Sean Connery. Yes, Sean Connery and mm-hmm. uh, and Alec Baldwin. Oh, yeah, that's right. He was in it. Yeah, yeah, he was the main character. So you remember... There's a meme about it, but do you remember this business will get out of control? We'll lucky to be, and we'll be lucky to live through it. No, I don't. It's been a while. There's a guy, Admiral Painter, who gets on the conning tower of the aircraft carrier he's on with Alec Baldwin and says this line: "This business will get out of control, and be, and we'll be lucky to live through it." And it's become a meme. And this is because they were doing combat air patrol over the area, o- over the area, and like they were close to Russian planes and U.S. planes, and if you keep militaries on high alert really near each other uh, yeah yeah <laughs> things are bound to happen this is not a stretch anyway so admiral painter was played by a guy named fred thompson and actually he was also on law and order uh as as the da for a while too mm, okay but between those two things when the hunt for red october came out in 1990 and him getting on law and order he was a senator oh really Yes, he was a senator. He actually ran for ran for president at one point, but uh, he's oh, wow. the senator that replaced Al Gore when Al Gore became vice president. Oh, okay. Uh, so he's a Republican from Tennessee, and mm-hmm. he served from 94 to 2003. So he won the subsequent term. Mm-hmm. And in 1998, he was the chairman of the Governmental Affairs Committee in the Senate. Okay. Where he presided over the testimony of the hacker collective known as The Loft. Ah, okay. And that's where we actually tie into the subject of our podcast. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, well, took you on a little trip there. Anyway, so let's talk about uh, The Loft, because we talked about the cult of the dead cow, and the cult of the, this is kind of the next point in the story of how we got to the world of information security that we have now. And a lot mm-hmm. of really important points come up here that we talked about in the last episode. And part of the reason why I wanted to do this episode now is because one of the members of the loft, a guy named Kingpin, his name is Joe Grant, and he was on the panel that we talked about in the episode that you just did. Mm-hmm. Right. So the loft was this hacker collective that was actually based out of a loft. That's where they got their name from, but it's always <laughs> spelled L zero P H 
tea. Mm-hmm. They were in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and they were described as the rock stars of the ha- hacker world, a hacker collective, a bunch of different things. And they all, when we'll, as we'll probably get to at the end of the episode, they all, or most of the folks that, that testified, have made significant marks on the IT world. Right. It's probably not overblown. Several of them have ties back to the cult of the dead cow. So like, this isn't just independent. They, they actually, there was a, there was a fair association. They had done a lot of vulnerability research uh, with notable vulnerabilities found in Sun, Microsoft, Novell, several others. Mm -hmm. So they had established themselves as doing like real pure vulnerability research. But what really got them kind of, what got them famous, what got people really writing about them was that they developed a password cracker called Loftcrack. I remember that. Right. So there were other password cracking tools. Loftcrack was better. And I honestly, I don't remember the performance enhancement they were able to put in there, but there were Mm -hmm. previous password crackers that were basically dictionary attacks against hashes. And at that point in time, either getting the hash the passwords file, the non-shadow, because password shadowing was still a new thing back then. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or the SAM file from a domain controller was a much more common mode of attack at that point in time. Mm. Okay. In fact, in 98, it was not entirely crazy to connect directly to a domain controller over the internet because not a lot, not everybody had firewalls in place. Yeah, I'm, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, there's some missions uh, that I've not worked on, but have heard tales from other people that like they came in in like the mid 2000s and mm-hmm. had the firewall. Yeah, well, I mean, where I was working in 98, 99, we were just putting it in. Mm. We had just gotten the equipment to real and and we're making the network changes to put it in. And uh, I might have mentioned this in a previous episode, but uh we got it in front of all of our public facing stuff, mm-hmm. but because somebody apparently pushed back at the uh, federal union level, we weren't able to put the firewall in front of the users for a while. No, <laughs> it was kind of funny the way that that worked out, but yeah, just... we did eventually do it. But like that was around 98, 99. And mm, right. where I was working was actually considered fairly cutting edge in terms of technology use for the government. Mm, Okay. We were at least past the median. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Right. Anyway, so just to frame as where we were at in the, in, in the world at the time, there were lots of techniques at that point in the NT4 world of getting the domain to disclose using a null share, which was still legal at the time to, Mm -hmm. to disclose at least records and sometimes entire SAM files. Right. Right. So password crackers were state of the hacker art, or at least state of the hacker line at the time. And they developed a really good one that could take a dictionary or iterate through essentially character sets that you wanted them to to work through. And they started selling this as a tool to say, okay, are the passwords in your password database crackable? Mm -hmm. As opposed to the way the hackers were using the tools to crack passwords is like, okay, are your passwords resistant to this? Right. Yeah. yeah. Through complexity. When co- password complexity really mattered because it kind of doesn't now. Um, <laughs> and hopefully we won't be using them soon ish, but uh, that's another conversation. Yeah. But the thing was kind of remarkable about this is that this is an early security tool. They took this and they create and they got some outside investment and there was a company called at stake that they 
sold Lovecraft through. Okay. I couldn't find like a clear explanation on exactly how that happened. Some people say that they did it. Everything that I've heard suggests that there was a set of investors that brought the financial backing to make it happen. Frankly, I didn't get enough accounts that agreed with one another to really say that I understand the story um, of exactly how that happened. But it's not super important. What is important is that they went commercial and they did. They went from being hackers that made things and were exploring things to for real, for contract production. Right, right, yeah. And a lot of these guys were real smart guys that had good jobs, like as their day jobs, working in various places, uh, either directly for folks or as consultants for Department of Defense and other government agencies, big industry stuff and all that stuff. So some of the things that that they end up talking about is them seeing both sides of it, both as researchers in the world of the 90 of the late 90s and as the people who were trying to do defense mm, okay in 98 six members testified uh about cybersecurity matters in front of the the government affairs committee mm-hmm. now the rumor is this got started by uh richard clark who was a national who's a national security expert served on the national security council has been a counterterrorism czar and eventually although not at this point in history the special advisor to the president about cybersecurity okay uh, frankly he, there's a whole s- story he's involved with related to 911 because he was a counterterrorism expert that created a paper that said hey maybe we need to worry about bin laden to w and right right Right. So there's a whole story around that. He's in there. This is not the only place he ever comes up in history. Right. I don't know that anybody ever confirmed this, but rumor had it that Richard Clark talked to Fred Thompson and said, hey, maybe you need to talk to some actual hackers when we're talking about security of government IT and like general industry security and, and the risk to the United States. Mm-hmm. So they got in contact with the loft because well hacker rock stars who else are you going to talk to yeah yeah, exactly so he he actually goes up to cambridge to talk to them they're in a place in a section of cambridge which i've actually been to called watertown which is essentially a neighborhood in in cambridge um mm. near where the actual water processing happens which is why they call it watertown if i Makes understand sense. That. at least that's how it was told to me yeah. um, he was impressed enough to say hey you guys really should testify and mudge Agreed. As long as they could testify using their hacker Haley, uh, their hacker aliases. Nice, like it. Great for branding. Yep. And in the spirit of this, because you could totally find their real names nowadays. It's you know, it's twenty five years later. Mm-hmm. Um, right. We will continue to use their aliases for this. So there was Mudge, uh, who is at least as far as the loft was concerned, kind of the the epicenter of this, and he kind of leads the testimony. There's Dildog, Weld Pond, Kingpin, Brian Oblivion, and Tan. Mm, okay. Okay. Those are the six guys that that, that, that testified in front of Congress. Mm-hmm. And you could totally see this on YouTube. I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm going to try and link the uh, testimony in the show notes. Yeah. So they talked about some stuff. Three major points that I want, because they talked about several attacks, which are maybe less relevant nowadays. They did talk about satellite jamming, like just doing straight ECM against satellite communications. Right. Even if the satellite communications has improved since then, that's probably still possible. But here's the thing about rogue EM in the continental United States at this point 
Mm-hmm. The FCC is pretty good at tracking you down. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they don't advertise all of their methods, but I do know that ham radio clubs do a lot of uh, fox and hound type exercises mm-hmm. as a fun thing to do. You have one person that's the fox, and right. everybody makes their own detector widget to try and find the fox mm, okay. who will broadcast at certain times and stuff. That's cool. Tracking radio signals isn't super hard. If you're mm-hmm. putting out big radio signals to jam things, keeping that secret isn't so easy. So maybe some of those vulnerabilities have been mitigated to some degree, although they do make the point about, you know, any disruption to some of this stuff can really be costly. Yeah, yeah. So they started talking about the ideas of industry impact, which is something that we all think about at the time, at right now, especially in the big ransomware era where mm-hmm. we've seen yeah, hospitals yeah, yeah. and like we've done a bunch of episodes on this, yep. but it wasn't a thing that people thought about very much at the time. In fact, even now we've only taken some steps to requiring certain levels of uh, information security for critical infrastructure. Mm, you're right. A lot of it's expected as part of company due diligence, but it was only re- in Gramlich Bliley and a few and a few other things that really requires any information security practices. Yeah, I mean, it's only been probably within the past five years uh, that I stopped noticing like XP systems when I go to like the hospital, mm-hmm. or the doctor's office, and they're actually like running Windows 10 now, which has, has amazed me. It's like, whoa, yeah. damn, okay. Oh, and some of that might just be the support complications. Yeah, uh, it probably, probably is, honestly. It probably costs uh, more to freaking uh, get someone to do XP. In fact, even Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, as much consulting as there is about that, doesn't directly require information security practices. It's mm. mostly, most of the inform- InfoSec stuff is under the, hey, you need to be sure what you're signing off on in terms of the books is correct. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's all about create the integrity before the sign-off. And so they were like, hey, we're computerizing everything. Everything talks to one another. And this is in 98 before the internet was really being leveraged for industry. It was, we we're barely at SSL at this point. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. We're like, we're, we've only had SSL for a couple of years. There were, there were lots of sites that didn't use SSL at all, even for commerce. But like the idea right now of, hey, we have critical stuff that, that makes things go. That that has real life implications. That runs over the internet as its as its transit method, in order to make everything work, would be mind boggling then because we are twenty five years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But they were raising the flag on, hey, more than you think relies on this stuff, and it's only going to get more complicated. Another thing that they talked about was basically the free movement of information on the, on the internet, as in unencrypted. Mm-hmm. That is a thing that I think that has been essentially conquered at this point. The internet in the last few years has gone from easily providing SSL or TLS to making it ubiquitous, making it the way that everything is transited. Yeah. I mean, there's probably still a few lingering places out there that are not SSL equipped. I mean, there's probably a site that even tracks like that sort of thing, but... All the stats that I've seen in the episodes I've done about the internet and SSL and stuff mm-hmm. says that the number is less than 10%. Even our website is SSL. And yeah. if you go to the HTTP site, it will redirect you because that's the default that Amazon gives me, even though nothing on my site would require any kind of SSL encapsulation. 
Yeah, I mean, we have services like Let's Encrypt out there. Why not do it when it can be automated and just like, you know, fire and forget, never have to worry about it again. Yeah, and a lot of people use hosting companies and those hosting companies just default to the SSL at this mm-hmm. point. Yeah. So you don't even have the time to decide, oh, the SSL is too complicated. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And another thing that they brought up that there was a actually really important point from them is an issue that I still think we have, which is software liability. Okay. Which is a vendor sells you a piece of software that has a defect in it that allows for a security compromise or just fails in a way that costs you money. Yeah. They're not liable. I find that funny when you look at the licensing mechanism. You don't own the software, but they're not liable for it. It's very interesting that they got kind of the best best of both worlds on that. Yeah, I've never actually thought about because like you do hear like sometimes like, oh, like uh, Cloudflare, like or like some other like hosting site or something like that will go down and like they've cost the customer money based on, you know, no one can reach the site, but never like, oh, the the software, you know, messed up and cost them Mm -hmm. much money. Huh. Interesting. Software flaws or software design problems especially at this point in time, you could have said, hey, Microsoft, you built a system that requires me to put a firewall in place. Why are you not liable for me to use your system in a way that's at all safe with an internet for you know, me creating the protections required to run your system? Mm, yeah. Especially when like, we're getting to the point where they're saying, oh, the browser is part of the operating system so any argument they make of well this isn't supposed to be on the internet he's like wait a minute <laughs> yeah i don't know how you built it to use this i think windows 10 is still this i don't know about windows 11 because i don't want to try it <clears throat> yeah. yeah wait till all the bugs get or i might even wait till like windows 12 or whatever but... odd number releases gotta stay away from them yeah that is true <laughs> yeah I was, I was just thinking that but i know like windows windows 7 i think it was like you could not remove internet explorer yeah it was like baked into the os mm-hmm. uh now we have edge and internet explorer in 10 and i think internet explorer is still technically part of the operating system and cannot be removed or like it will just brick your system so XP, it was in 2003, and, and Windows mm. 2000 will, will be in two more years from mm-hmm. where we're at. So this is actually before all of that. But as an aside on that, at the time, everybody was like, how could Internet Explorer be part of everything? And it was funny that a 10 or 12 or so years later, it was like, yeah, they were right. It was totally entwined with everything, because if you mm-hmm. look at all the libraries the browser uses it's insinuated with basically everything that shows you any kind of data in the operating system they really did leverage those libraries everywhere Mm -hmm. which continued to me because like internet explorer had was a top three culprit in number of of, like show-stopping vulnerabilities there every year for a while (laughs) meant that patching was absolutely imperative because it affected a number of other things within the operating system. You're making me vaguely remember. I'm just recalling what I can. There was an exploit like what, four years ago, uh, five years ago with Microsoft Word with like embedded images or something like that. And like it was tied into the libraries that Internet Explorer utilized. And yeah, yeah you could just open up a Word document and then just get pwned. Yeah. I don't remember the particular one, but that 
sequence of events was not unique to one vulnerability. Mm, yeah. But where I think the stuff that they were talking about really ties in to the stuff that we were that we were talking about just last episode was they were talking about, hey, we're just a bunch of curious guys, but we found a lot of really important things. They were starting the conversation about vulnerability research as an industry, which goes into the idea of right to hack and the chilling effect of going after people who are doing legitimate research. Right. Yeah. So at the time, we were at the very beginning of the white hat, black hat, gray hat era. As I've described previously, the idea of full disclosure of vulnerabilities was still pretty new and done at that point in time. There were still people who were regimented, only listened to the vendor. And one of the things that they talked about in their testimony is like, hey, these vendors won't tell you if there's a vulnerability. Right, yeah. They brought up not explicit examples, but they sounded specific which of like, <laughs> If you've got a vulnerability and you, and you call them up and you say, hey, I'm being hacked, they'll be like, hey, yeah, we have this non-public patch that you could use, but it's not mm -hmm. public yet, meaning that they knew the vulnerability existed, they had a fix, and they didn't make the fix available, and they didn't make the fact that the vulnerability existed available. Right, yeah. And so like that was the reality of the era at the time. So they were really introducing to Congress this idea of... There is a world where legitimate vulnerability research should be not just allowed, we should integrate it into industry. Right, yeah. yeah. And that reporting of vulnerabilities needs to be something that is not incumbent on the vendor, but like a responsibility thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that ties right into that whole software liability thing. Maybe, and again, we've never done this, there is some price to be paid if you're a government vendor. But there isn't anything to say, hey, if you have a vulnerability and you don't disclose it in a reasonable time frame, you can get fined or you have you have liability for any damages somebody somebody using your software incurs mm -hmm. if you don't disclose under these uh, under this set of circumstances. And yeah, it's a shame. Yeah. The big vendors that we have very likely to be fine. Mm hmm because they've already got pretty good practices. It's the small vendors, which, well, frankly, I mean, we did IoT stuff a few episodes ago. There's a lot of fly-by-night IoT vendors. <laughs> yeah. And what do we do about them? I mean, as I, I, as I think we talked about in that episode, it's whatever happens, happens, man. You get mm -hmm. what you get. Yeah, exactly. So, like, that was, the th that was probably my biggest takeaway. My single biggest takeaway was about them beginning to push the idea of vulnerability research as a profession as integrated into the world of technology as it existed then. And mm -hmm. a very important part of that is right to hack and the chilling effect of what happens when you criminalize anybody who does vulnerability research. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because uh, it wouldn't be that many more years that real chilling effect things happened. Mm -hmm. I'm not making up the term chilling effect. It, it was... People discussed that as a topic in, <laughs> within the next five or so years, yeah. uh, as I recall. It wasn't that much longer until real vulnerability research was happening, some mm. of the disclosures happening, and some very big companies threatened and, in, and at least one case started legal action against people. 
if it's going to cut into the bottom line at all, like they're going to throw all their weight around. And that was one of the big, big worries about a law that was going to be put into place in a couple of years from this point in time, the Digital mm-hmm. Millennium Copyright Act. Mm-hmm. So the big showstopper thing that was talked about on this one was that they said they could take the whole internet down in 30 minutes. Any single mm-hmm. one of them could. Right. Now they were talking about a BGP vulnerability that they had actually disclosed before the testimony. And there was a patch available at that time. Mm, okay. I discussed a lot of the BGP security stuff in the episode about the internet. There's a lot of pieces of BGP security that we still haven't completely solved. Okay. Yep. We're still at a point, as I said in that episode, where they have a structure for doing route validation. Are the routes that are being advertised to me ones that this AS is supposed to be advertising, but mm-hmm. the use of it isn't as widespread as it needs to be to make it work. Right, yeah. But that technology wasn't even a twinkle in anybody's eye in 98. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned at that point that you could make security for BGP connections. That didn't exist at this point. Mm, right. We were actually at a point where it was not particularly common, at least from my personal experience, to have router ACLs that would block the ability for folks to send like reset packets mm-hmm. to, to terminate a BGP connection. The practice of making real internet routers has advanced considerably. So then a lot of the tools we have have advanced considerably. I don't think that some of the problems that they were talking about specifically on that are fully solved. See previous episode. And a lot of, I really tried in that episode to go over a bunch of real world attacks that happened because of security problems in internet routing. We haven't seen anything like that recently. Mm. I mean, frankly, getting into the priesthood of of running those routers is not an easy thing. (laughs) These guys really like to get there, to get there, the people that do that, and they're not all guys anymore. At one point, it was very male dominated. It's, it's, from my understanding, it's gotten all that the distribution is better. But, um, but all of those folks getting into that rarefied stratum where you're real, where you're doing the architecture and design. And mm-hmm. standard implementation of how tier one providers talk to one another is not something that you do overnight. And there's a lot of degree of practice that ev- that has been built up over time. And everybody there kind of knows each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the difficult to account for security things is that those folks know what normal is and they talk to each other a lot. And it's like, oh... This is kind of hinky over here. I wonder if somebody's doing something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not an inherent security measure. Anyway, so I guess I'll wrap up by saying that the last of those six guys, uh, Mudge, mm-hmm. he worked for BBN, which did a lot of the foundational work for the internet. And uh, after that, he worked at, well, his name I'm going to have to give out. His name is Peter Zakto. And he worked as a DARPA project manager. And while he was there, he put in something called the Cyber Fast Track, which allows for smaller, less involved projects that DARPA might be interested in. And they've mm-hmm. done so, and several relatively well, well-known hackers, at least in the hacker world. I know for a fact that Fidor of NMAP fame did one. Oh, okay. There are a couple others. I just don't remember them off the top of my head. Have done some of these Cyber Fast Track things. So that, so like he did... He did a, a a significant change that allows the hacker world to 
directly contribute to DARPA without going through the entire grant process, which is really cool. Yeah, that's really cool. He then went to work for Google. He and his wife started a, an institute that did software binary review. They were looking for artifacts in binaries that cause various security problems, mostly like buffer overflow, heap overflow type things, and caused a lot of iteration, especially of Linux. But the presentations I've seen, like, there was some remarkable changes in like Mac OS okay. through their analysis. And then, so you may have heard the name recently if you're a real InfoSec head, because he joined on to Twitter as their chief information security officer. And he thought some of the stuff mm -hmm. they were doing with, with personal information and whatnot wasn't so good. So he told Congress. <laughs> And he's the Twitter whistleblower that recently testified in front of Congress. Right. Yeah. I knew like <laughs> I knew of him previously, but the name was very um, at the forefront of my mind when you were talking about him. Yeah. So I'm not sure that my cynical brain didn't already think they were doing the things that they were doing, but <laughs> <laughs> he did blow the whistle, but I don't know that he got a lot of traction with it. And uh, mm. from at least my just by anecdotal being in the world side, I don't think he, that Twitter was the worst was the worst of the lot by far. No, probably not. But yeah, yeah. So Dildog and Weldpond uh, started Veracode, which makes a lot of software practice tools, as in tools for software development practice. Okay, uh, making sure that you're not making mistakes, mm -hmm. software review stuff, that kind of thing. Oh, very cool. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and they've been, and so Veracode's been an important player in Silicon Valley for a while because their tools are used by a lot of folks that make a lot of the software that you use every day. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, as we talked about, Joe Grant, Kingpin, he's a hardware hacker. And the, the most recent thing that, that I know about him about is recovering a hardware key for a crypto wallet. For Bitcoin mm -hmm. wallet and the YouTube series that he did on the whole process of, of recovering that. Right. Yeah, I'll have to watch I'm, that. Yeah. I'm gonna well, I'll try and link it in the I'm gonna go ahead and yeah, link yeah, it yeah, in, yeah. in the episode notes. Mm. So that was the loft in nineteen ninety-eight. I mean, it was a lofty goal to uh yeah. do the podcast, but well, I, I got kind of caught up in work, so I, I might have uh, rushed <laughs> this one a little bit and just getting a podcast out. Might have been a lofty goal. Find out about new episodes of r slash hacking the Gibson on Reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the Wikimedia Foundation or Electronic Frontier Foundation.